Any little ones that might like to go out at this time? Returning after several weeks to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, and this uh, chapter we'll see is, is really one unit, but there is so much packed into it that we want to take it a, a little bit at a time to get as much as we can out of this uh, wonderful portion of God's Word. So I'm just going to read the first four verses uh, for our text this morning. Let's hear, then, uh, God's word for us today. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, we're beginning now the fourth of five sections of teaching uh, in the Gospel of Matthew that, that uh, the apostle is inspired to organize his, his gospel around. Uh, some have drawn a parallel there. Uh, with the five books of law, the five books of Moses, uh, thinking that perhaps Matthew had that in mind and is sort of seeing, seeing his gospel as presenting the gospel, the law of the new covenant in a sense. So we're in the fourth of those uh, sections. Uh, each one of them sort of relates to uh, what came before it. And just to refresh your minds, in chapter 17, we had that incredible event of the transfiguration. Uh, before that, in chapter 16, we had that first profession of, of uh, the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ by Peter. So we had those high points in chapter 16 and 17. But remember, coupled with those was Jesus' insistence that his destiny is crucifixion. Okay, that, that where he's headed for is to lay down his life. And the disciples still haven't got that, have they? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this, this passage, notes that disconnect and says, how is it that the disciples can come with this question after after what's just come before this. And, and notice Matthew does tie them together. He says, at that time. So he wants us to see this in connection with what has gone on before. Jesus has, has told them, if you look back in verse 22 and 23 of chapter 17, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed and typical human fashion, they seem to have gotten over their distress pretty quickly, right? As they, they know he's been talking about the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we, we saw it all the way back in chapter 4 of Matthew. I mean, that's how Jesus' preaching was summed up. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they've heard him talking about the kingdom over and over and over again. 
Well, at least they've got that much. (laughs) They finally understood, yeah, it's all about the kingdom. But they, they don't have a right understanding of that kingdom, do they? They're still thinking in very earthly terms. Uh, the disciples take a long time to learn. Do you ever take a long time to learn something? <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it great that God is patient with us when we're slow to learn? That there are lessons that he just has to drum into our heads, doesn't he? Uh, but he is patient. You, you, you could excuse Jesus if, if he had voiced great impatience at this point. I mean, we're a significant way through his ministry at this point. He is on the verge of heading to Jerusalem and suffering and death. They still don't have it. But instead of losing his temper with them, instead of rebuking them, it's sort of like he's saying, well, let me try a different way. <laughs> let me try another way to help you guys see this. And so he uses a visual aid. Uh, any good teacher knows visual aids are often helpful. And so he, he uses one. He calls to him, Self, a child. The, 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 uh, the word for child here, by the way, is neuter. It's not male or female. Now, most English translations offer male just using it in the generic sense in verse 2. Uh, but in Greek, it's neuter. Uh, if we were going to be real literal, we'd say uh, he put it in the midst of them, but then that would sound weird because we're calling a child an it. Uh, But I do want to emphasize that there's a universality to what he's saying here that we want not to miss. He calls to himself a child. I can't help but think that that's indicative of the fact that children are never really far away from Jesus. I think there are always kids around. Uh, of course, he was in people's homes, so there'd be children there. Uh, but we know from other passages in the scripture that uh, Jesus, Jesus loved children. You know, that little song that we sing, Jesus loves the little children. It's good theology, as I mentioned in my newsletter. Uh, I, I think he was approachable by children. Uh, obviously this child is not too timid or afraid to come to him. He comes readily. Uh, Jesus cares for children. Uh, we, we need to remember that in the midst of a culture that does not care for children. We live in a culture that is extremely harsh to children. Uh, in, in countless ways. So the little child is there and, and Jesus calls him or her to himself. I'm sure he called them by name, actually. I'm sure he knew the name of this child. And so already, before he says a word, he's really answered their question, hasn't he? They say, who then is greatest? 
and he shows them. Here's the one greatest. Here's the one greatest. But he's going to reinforce that. He's going to make it explicit, of course. And so he adds to the visual image uh, most decisive words. Uh, my translation has truly here. Uh, literally, he says, amen. We've seen him do that before. Jesus will amen something before he says it. Okay. Occasionally, people will amen something after it's said as an affirmation. Jesus gives the amen before he says it, and so every time you see him doing that, if it's in your translation truly or verily perhaps, that's a cue to you. You better really listen to this. He's emphasizing it. And he emphasizes it as well, notice, by using a double negative. That, that's, that's a form of emphasizing what he's saying here as well. So, amen, I say to you, here it is, if you do not turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See how he's changed the, the question there? It's almost like, and this certainly isn't original with me, I've read this a number of places, it's, it's as if he's saying, why are you talking about being the greatest? You better make sure you're in. <laughs> You men forget vying for the, the top place. You better make sure first that you got in the door. Uh, we, we know one of these disciples won't, right? Judas will go to hell after sitting under the ministry of Jesus. Simply sitting in a church, hearing the ministry of Jesus, not enough it won't get you into the kingdom of heaven and so there's a note of warning here I think and notice the demand let's not skim over that either unless you turn unless you repent it's the same idea he's been preaching from the very beginning isn't it remember he's, he's Preaching is summed up, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Turn. Your thinking, he's saying, is headed in the wrong direction. Unless you turn, you're not on the right track. If you're going the wrong direction, picking up speed won't help you. In fact, if you're going the wrong direction, slowing down won't do you a lot of good. You need to turn around. That's what he's saying here. Turn your thinking around. Now, they'll get it eventually, but they don't have it yet. Turn your thinking around. And in fact, literally... Literally, in the original language here, this is a passive. 
unless you are turned around, if you are not turned around, implying that this is something that needs to be done to them. Okay, the passive is saying that it's done to you, right? When you use that in the construction. Unless you are turned, if you are not turned around, if somebody doesn't turn around your thinking, you're headed in the wrong direction. That's what he's saying to the disciples. And who's going to do that turning around? Who's going to do that for them? They're looking at him, right? In effect, Jesus is saying, I want to turn around your thinking, okay? And you need to wake up to that fact. If you're not turned around and become like children, become like children, there's there's the goal. There's the goal. That's how you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, is you're going to become like children. And he emphasizes it again, verse 4, right? Now he states it positively. He stated it negatively for emphasis to impress upon them their thinking wrongly, and they need to submit to his thinking. They need to have their thinking changed. Now he says it positively, and here's really where we get the answer to the question, right? He picks up their language back in verse 1 and uses it in verse 4. Whoever, aren't you glad for the whoever's in the Bible? (laughs) Whoever. Because whoever includes you, right? Whoever humbles himself. Now there is the quality that he's emphasizing in the child. Jesus is not saying that there's this innocence about childhood, and if you could just recapture that innocence, you'd be okay. okay. Children are not born innocent. Okay. They're, they're born sinners. They are wrongly thinking from the beginning because they're focused on self. And so Jesus is not pretending that children are good and if we could just sort of be good like kids, we'd be okay. No, he's picking up on this quality of humility, weakness, right? Weakness, humility, defenselessness. This little child that he puts in front of the disciples is vulnerable before them. They're big men. He could be abused. She could be abused by them. The child is a sign of humility. So if you become... Humble, like this child, he says, if you, if you are given the quality of humility, you're the greatest. You notice the, the requirement for entrance is the same as the requirement for greatness. 
Don't you like that? The disciples are concerned for ranking. That's not to be there in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying. We're not a hierarchy. We're not a bureaucracy. The same quality that is the condition of entrance is the condition of greatness, and it is humility. Why is humility so crucial here? Is it enough just to believe the right thing? To know the, the truth about God? Isn't it, isn't it enough to have the right doctrine? Isn't it enough to do all the right things? Okay, to go through the motions of right living. Why, why the emphasis on humility? Well, of course, if we had time, we could see this has been the emphasis in the Bible from the beginning. What is Adam's sin except the pride of putting his thinking over God's. The essence of Adam's sin is his pride in standing independent of God. He has lost his humility, he's lost any sense of dependence, he's lost any sense of submission to the one who created him. And so all the way through scripture, we see that call to, to humility. Uh, the, it's in the prophets. It's in the historical narratives. Uh, I've got pages here of them, but let me just mention a couple. Deuteronomy 8. God calls the people out of, out of Egypt. He rescues them from slavery. And remember, they spend 40 years in the wilderness. Why do they have to spend so much time in the wilderness? Well, it's because of this. Deuteronomy 8. You shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. Isn't that ironic? There are a bunch of slaves in Egypt. And he rescues them out of slavery and he has to teach them humility. <laughs> they, were, they were proud slaves. So it wasn't enough just to free them physically. He had to teach them humility. Moses goes on to say, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. And what is the number one thing he goes on to warn them about in, in, later in chapter 8 of Deuteronomy? It's pride. I know what's going to happen, Moses says. You're going to get into that promised land, and you're going to wake up one day and think, Aren't I a good person to be here? 
God's rewarded me. Going to be like the Pharisee that Jesus talks about in one of his parables. God, I thank you. I'm so grateful to you that I'm not like other people. (laughs) It turns gratitude, the expression of gratitude, into an expression of pride. Pride is so insidious, isn't it? So insidious. Uh, Again, referring to Spurgeon commenting on this, this passage, he says at one point, commenting on Matthew 18 here, that, that there's nothing as repulsive as false humility. <laughs> and I think he's right. Uh, he might have been thinking of the character Uriah Heep and Charles Dickens' David Copperfield, if any of you have read that. This snaky, slimy kind of person that was always talking about how humble he was. Oh, I'm just such a humble guy. I don't think anything of myself. And all the time, he's plotting behind the scenes for his own own advancement. You know, if what Jesus says is true here in our text, this means that your number one obstacle, the number one barrier to you, and living in the kingdom of God is your pride. It's your pride. The kingdom of heaven is locked against the proud. And you'll never be able to follow Christ in pride. Because that's not his way. Not his way. But remember, if humility is the entryway to the kingdom of God, then no one is too lowly to get in. No one is too lowly to get in. What wonderful good news that is, isn't it? What does humility look like to you? You know, what's, what is it going to look like in your life for you to live humbly? Well, I'm sure you can come up with better answers than mine probably, but it's, it seems like to me it's going to involve the relinquishing of your rights. You're going to drop the language about your rights. I have a right to this, I have a right to that, I have a right to the other thing. I may have mentioned a book that I read about read uh, of essays written by a Christian pastor, China, who is still, as far as we know, in prison. We think he's still alive. And he he wrote a, a series of essays some years ago, and he emphasized this particular point. He said, "We as a church, we as Christians, speaking of himself, Chinese believers, is he he was." Uh, senior pastor of a large urban church in China that was planting other urban churches, he said, we need to drop the language of rights. We need to stop claiming our rights and instead rely upon God's word. 
It means seeing yourself as servant, doesn't it? If you're humble, then that means you're going to be a servant. That doesn't mean you won't be leading. Okay, being humble doesn't mean you sit in the back all the time. We need humble leaders. We need humble leaders in the church. Uh, We need people who are willing to step up and take leadership in, in teaching and providing an example and coming alongside of other people. We need humble leaders. There are many, many examples of this in Scripture. Uh, almost any one of the, the narratives in the Old and New Testament that focus on people, you, you, could, you could look at that person from the standpoint of, of humility. For instance, remember Moses is said to be the humblest man on the earth at that point. Now, there's, a, there's a powerful leader And yet scripture says he's the meekest man on earth. And that that, the context in which that's said is where his leadership is challenged. His own brother and sister challenge him. They they don't like the fact that he's married a certain woman and and so they're, they're challenging his authority. And how does he deal with that? Does he claim his rights? I'm the one God chose. (laughs) Why don't I have the right to take a wife of my own choosing? No. He relied on the vindication of the Lord. He did not speak a word against them. God defended him. You can look at this... the history of Joseph. I think Joseph is a wonderful picture of, of humility in, in his life story. Some people think that, you know, in his talking about his dreams when he was young, he's being proud, he was being self-centered. I, I don't think so. Here's this young man, and he has this dream. Obviously, it, it's made a great impression upon him he dreams it again. Well, he knows he comes from a family where God speaks to people in dreams. He spoke to his great-grandfather, Abraham. And he spoke to his own father, Jacob, in a dream. So I think it's a sign of his humility that he comes to his family and says, I've had this dream. Okay, can you help me understand it? Uh, I, I, I think I should let you know. You know, we've heard about the dreams of, that God has given to our family, and some of them are very significant. I think it's a sign of his humility. I think we see his humility in his obedience, his, his submission to his father. His father was not particularly wise in the kind of decisions that he made. But you never see Joseph bucking that. Jacob really sets Joseph up in front of his brothers. He gives him preferential treatment. 
And then he sends him into harm's way. You never see Joseph objecting to that. We, we see his humility as a slave. Right? He winds up a slave down in Egypt to Potiphar. And he is entirely trustworthy in that position, isn't he? In fact, when his master's wife tries to seduce him, his response is, how could I commit this sin against God and my master? You see where he's putting himself? He's putting himself underneath God and his master. And he shows a humility in prison. He shows a humility when he winds up elevated to second in command in Egypt. All of his decisions that he's making in that context are for the good of other people. He serves his his government faithfully. And we see him serving his family as well, of course. And what's enabled him to do that all those years? So that after his father dies and his brothers get afraid that he's going to seek revenge, he's going to get back at us now for what we did to him. You remember what Joseph says to them? He says, I'm not going to seek revenge on you because I trust in God's sovereignty. You meant it for evil. He acknowledges they they tried to do do him wrong. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Humility, trust in the sovereignty of God. That's why you can relinquish your rights. Because you can trust in God that he's working through you. That's, that's why you can see yourself as servant, because your ultimate master is God. That, that's why you can, you, you can lead, seek to lead with a motivation of love, because you know God is sovereign and working in all things. And of course, in, in learning humility, you're simply going to be following in the footsteps of your Lord right? I mean, Jesus could really have, when they asked this question, who is the greatest, he really could have said, me, (laughs) right? He is the perfectly humble one. He, he, He shows it over and over again. Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God, and yet he did not cling to his rights. That's what he's saying. Jesus relinquished his rights but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. How humbling it was for God to take on human form. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
In a few moments, we're going to observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This is his table. It's a table for the citizens of his kingdom, for the members of his family. This is a kingdom meal. We are anticipating, in fact, that, that culminating kingdom meal in the new heavens and the new earth. And how can you have the audacity to participate in it? What gives you the right to eat the bread, drink the wine of the new kingdom? It's because your Lord humbled himself. Your Lord lowered himself and made himself your servant so that you could sit at his table. When you choose humility, and it is a choice, it's a way of thinking, remember? When you choose that, you choose a most beautiful, a most wonderful path because it's the path that your Savior walked. And it ultimately ends in glory, doesn't it? Paul goes on to say in that Philippians passage, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There is no humility like the humility of Jesus Christ. No one has ever humbled themselves as much as he did. And so his exaltation is above that of anyone else as well. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Your Lord calls you to humility, saying, turn, be turned. Let me turn around your thinking. Become like children. Follow me in humility so that you can follow me into glory. What a wonderful invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, if we know ourselves at all, we'd look within and we'd say, boy, there's, there's no one that deserves humbling like me. I, I can think of innumerable reasons why I should be humble. And as we as we think that, Lord, we're reminded of your great love then, aren't we? Because you humbled yourself for us. It's really difficult for us to even understand. We certainly cannot understand why you did it. There, there's no good reason why you should humble yourself to save people like us. But we believe 
that you did. We believe that you come to us now through your Holy Spirit, that you call us to humility like you, and that you even give us of your spirit as we trust in you, as we put our faith in you. You give us your spirit so that we can grow in humility. Help us to do so, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.